Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start today, I just want to take a moment and thank the National Peanut Board for their kind sponsorship of today's show and for all of their support over the years. We're learning today about two of the other food-related conditions called eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE, and eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease, called EGID for short, with FACS Medical Advisory Board member, board-certified allergist and immunologist and pediatrician, Dr. Peter Capicelli. These patients avoid certain foods like those with food allergies, but these conditions are very unique. Welcome, Dr. Capicelli. We're absolutely thrilled to host you today on Facts Roundtable podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here and happy to be discussing this important topic. Thank you. We really appreciate your time. We know you're super busy. And I also want to thank you on behalf of FACT for serving on our medical advisory board. We appreciate your time to absolutely no end. Oh, of course. My pleasure. Before we dive deep into our discussion today, can you share with listeners your background? I know you're a pediatrician and I also know you're an allergist. So does this mean that you only practice on children? So, yeah, so allergy is a unique specialty in that physicians are able to treat patients of all ages from infancy through adulthood. I had the opportunity to complete both my general pediatric training as well as my allergy and immunology training at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And so overall, I would say that I did have more exposure to training and a bit more of a focus now in pediatric allergic and immunologic disorders, but I do see adults as well. But as we know, allergies affect patients of all ages and encompass multiple chronic diseases, whether it be asthma or classic hay fever, food allergy, and especially the other food-related allergic disorders such as uh, eosinophilic esophagitis, which we'll be talking about more today. So it's nice to be able to follow those patients from infancy through adulthood. Thank you very much for sharing this information. When we hear the term food allergy and other related conditions, some of us are confused. So can you explain what does other conditions mean? What are doctors referring to when we hear this term? Yes. So the term food allergy is somewhat broad and actually encompasses several different types of adverse reactions that individuals can have to foods. In general, When we refer informally to food allergy, most of the time we're referring to classic allergic reactions that most are familiar with, which is anaphylaxis. That's an immediate reaction to a food that occurs upon ingestion and usually results in symptoms like hives, swelling, or wheezing. Foods like peanuts, shellfish, milk, eggs, etc. are common triggers of this. And the treatment is the use of injectable epinephrine to stop the reaction. In addition to history, we use skin prick testing and blood testing to help in the diagnosis of this type of allergy. 
and to identify which foods may be an allergen. And that's really specific to this sort of, again, classical food reaction or anaphylaxis where you get an immediate reaction to the food. And, you know, this is perhaps the most pronounced and certainly the most common form of food allergy that we're aware of. And the prevalence of these allergies have been increasing over the past several decades. But separate from these types of allergies, there are several other conditions that actually fall under the umbrella of, you know, quote, food allergy, where patients have adverse reactions specifically to foods, but the reactions present with different symptoms. And that's really because there's a whole different physiologic process going on. We sometimes term these non-anaphylaxis allergies or non-IgE allergy. IgE is an allergy protein in the body that is involved in anaphylaxis, but not really in the other types of food allergies. So non-anaphylaxis food allergies include things like eosinophilic esophagitis or EOE, which is, of course, our focus today, but also other conditions that are more readily being recognized and diagnosed, such as FPIs or food-related enterocolitis or proctocolitis. Commonly, these non-anaphylaxis type food allergies don't really present with things like hives and swelling they more often tend to present with symptoms that can be localized to the gastrointestinal tract, like vomiting, sometimes diarrhea, sometimes blood in the stool, and and things like that. So can a person have food allergies and EOE, one of these other kind of conditions as well? They can have both, actually. And that's something that, you know, we'll talk about in a little bit more detail as we go on. But yes, you can have multiple different kinds of food allergies And keeping that straight during a clinical evaluation is really important in terms of, you know, interpreting what testing you do and then treatments. It sounds like it's a challenge. Sometimes it can be, but, you know, it's what keeps it exciting. Well, that's what keeps you going, right? Now let's zero in on some of these conditions. Can you explain what eosinophilic esophagitis is, also known as EOE? For listeners, we can just use EOE to make it easy. And what treatment options are available for managing this condition? Sure. So EOE is a chronic, meaning it's long-lasting. It's an allergic condition, and it impacts the esophagus, which is the swallowing tube from the mouth to the stomach. The condition is actually caused by the presence of these eosinophils, which are a type of allergy-specific white blood cell. And these cells essentially infiltrate in the esophagus in response to the presence of an allergen, which is usually a food. Ordinarily, we don't expect to have any eosinophils in the esophagus. But in this condition, when individuals are exposed to a food that they're sensitive to in this particular way, the body begins an inflammatory process. And that involves the eosinophils that act locally, essentially where the body has been exposed to the food i.e. the esophagus. In contrast to patients who eat foods and have an immediate allergic reaction like hives or full anaphylaxis, the allergic process in EOE is often indolent and sometimes goes unnoticed until there's been progression of the disease. And so you essentially get this inflammation over time that leads to the clinical manifestations that we see in kids and adults with EOE. So as a result, we see a variety of symptoms things like vomiting, discomfort with feeding or pain with feeding, heartburn. And as the condition progresses, the esophagus can actually become more inflamed. And then this leads to things like narrowing and even hardening of the esophagus, 
over time and patients tend to begin having more and more trouble with swallowing foods and can potentially even get food stuck or impacted where the food needs to be removed. And this is sometimes the hallmark sort of presentation of EOE. But symptoms really do differ significantly by age and are often difficult to diagnose because they can be very nonspecific. So in young children, for instance, we sometimes see only food refusal or maybe some vomiting or some intermittent regurgitation associated with eating. And this may not occur with every meal. Children may be labeled as picky eaters, for instance, when in fact, the process of eating for them is likely causing discomfort. And this is not often verbalized well in our youngest children, which is not unique to this condition. As symptoms progress to later childhood, teenage years, or into adulthood, we see more trouble swallowing, complaints of food moving slowly down the esophagus where they can feel the food moving slowly, or even food impaction. And luckily, there are treatments available for EOE. I always try to tell my patients that one of the hardest parts about managing EOE is recognizing it in the first place and making the diagnosis because it is likely so often missed. The other encouraging aspect of EOE management and treatment is that now more than ever, there are ongoing research studies that are showing tremendous promise for novel therapies for EOE and are likely to be available for use in a relatively short time frame. Classically, though, we initially think about three primary treatment options. In my practice, I do stress to patients that figuring out which treatment option is, quote, the best is dependent on the individual patient and often the family. Sometimes we do see treatments being followed in a stepwise fashion, but our aim tends to be to take a very patient-centered approach so that we can find the best therapy that works for the individual patient, taking into account things like quality of life and just general family preferences. So one of the initial therapies that we discuss are a class of medications called proton pump inhibitors or PPIs. These are commonly used for acid reflux to decrease the acidity in the stomach. And this can also help to decrease the burden of eosinophils in the esophagus. And in about 40 to 50% of patients, use of these medications alone can actually control EOE. We also use topical steroids, which is not unique to eosinophilic esophagitis, but we use topical steroids in asthma and also in eczema, the other allergic conditions. These are actually low-dose steroids that are used routinely for asthma and formulated in inhalers or nebulizer solutions. However, for EOE, instead of asking patients to inhale the medication, we have them swallow the steroids which then acts locally to decrease eosinophils in the esophagus. And these are some of the most effective medications we have currently. Finally, as this is a food-driven process, we discussed with patients that food elimination or removing foods fully from the diet can actually lead to decrease in symptoms and decrease in eosinophils in the esophagus. Part of our job on the allergy side, if food elimination is an option for a family or an individual patient, is to help figure out which foods to remove and in what order. So for some families where the goal is to avoid use of medications, food elimination may be a good option. However, in other families who feel that taking foods out of the diet may either be too difficult or potentially detrimental or may impact quality of life negatively, sometimes we then just discuss leaning more heavily on the medications. And this is why it's so important to have a thorough conversation with the family and that the family have a thorough conversation with their allergist about the options before jumping into a treatment plan 
since there are many factors that go into these decisions. Once a treatment is started, we then follow clinically the symptoms to see if symptoms are improving, but also have patients undergo repeat endoscopies where gastroenterologists will use a narrow scope to look into the esophagus and then take biopsies so we can measure the number of eosinophils that are present and check to see if these cells have responded to the treatment we're using. And so now are the treatments ongoing? So once you start, say, the medication, you're on it for life, or does it wax and wane? I've heard people before mention being in remission. Eosinophil levels down low enough that they're not detectable on a endoscopy. But in general, this is a chronic, usually lifelong condition to the best that we know from the data that we have. And for the most part, what we do see is that if therapies are stopped, these cells do tend to come back. I do think that we have in general a lot to learn about what EOE looks like long-term and from you know infancy to adulthood and the natural history of this disease. But generally, it is more of a chronic disease that does at least need surveillance pretty frequently. I'm sure our listeners are just so grateful to get some good information here because it's a mystery to a lot of us. And actually, on that note... How can we support our friends who have EOE? We know for people with food allergies, we can help them by helping them avoid the allergens and by understanding how to respond to an emergency. But like, what can someone like me do to support a friend or a colleague who has EOE? Yeah, so I think you make a really good point. You know, for the classic anaphylaxis type food allergies, friends, families, teachers, colleagues, it would be great if they're aware of the allergy being present and optimally would be able to help manage a reaction, usually with epinephrine in the case of an accidental ingestion. For EOE, we are not as often faced with emergent situations. As mentioned before, these symptoms often go unnoticed, which is not the case with anaphylaxis typically. And EOE can be just a very slow process leading to symptoms that only maybe notable or noticeable over time. That said, a great majority of my patients, especially teenagers or young adults, older adults, have been told that they're eating too quickly, they need to chew their food more thoroughly, and symptoms just go missed. So, you know, if this happened once or twice where you have trouble swallowing a food, okay, but if this is a persistent thing that's happening, then this is where families, friends, colleagues can be really helpful in terms of awareness and having a low threshold to, you know, suggest an evaluation by an allergist. Some young children with EOE, if you ask, they will be noted to be very slow chewers or maybe have pretty significant or profound food avoidance tendencies. These may go unnoticed at home because it's sort of the norm for the child, but teachers may notice that. And so they could be great advocates for these patients if they are noticing that, hey, this child in particular is always chewing very slow never finishes their meal, avoids most foods, that type of thing, appears to be in discomfort with eating, for instance. And children may think that their symptoms are actually normal and may not even bring these symptoms to to anyone's attention. Overall, we like to catch this as early as possible to limit the progression of the disease over time. So if you have a friend or a family member who you've noticed has trouble with eating or they have mentioned things, they mentioned food going down slowly or even very refractory heartburn, Connecting them with analogists to at least talk about this is a reasonable start. Again, I mentioned before that one of the hardest things about EOE is actually making a timely diagnosis, and I do feel like that's true. I have patients first coming to medical attention 
in their 60s and their 70s. And at that point, the disease is usually highly progressed, requiring sometimes more significant interventions. The other way to be supportive is to really support those who are working hard to pursue food elimination. This is not an easy thing to do by any means, especially considering foods such as milk, which means not just milk in terms of drinking milk, but no cheese, no yogurt, no ice cream, no butter, breads with milk baked into it. So you can see that this encompasses a large number of foods and can be very tricky to maneuver. So being mindful around family gatherings, preferring a food and communicating with families who may be dealing with this to figure out safe meals and things like that. This is incredible information. Thank you so much for explaining this in such lay terms because the term eosinophilic esophagitis is quite long and a little scary. And so now you're helping us understand this better. You're doing such a great job with breaking all this down in digestible bites for us. Let's turn our attention to eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease, also known as EGIDS. Can you help us better understand this disease and just like EOE, including the management and treatment of it? And then also, if you don't mind touching on what's the difference between the EGID and FPIs? Sure. So EGID is also somewhat of a broad term. This encompasses EOE and similar disorders where eosinophils are found at abnormally high levels. Usually we're either talking about in the stomach as well or lower down in the intestines in the GI tract. These conditions are a bit more rare than EOE and sometimes even more difficult to diagnose and more difficult to treat. Patients often present with abdominal pain, which can be quite significant, sometimes even dysmotility, meaning there's slowing of the GI tract. And unfortunately, you know, this can be much more refractory to the treatments that we have, basically thinking about the same treatments that we use for EOE. And often this is also a food-driven process. Luckily, there are, again, several new therapies in ongoing research studies that we hope to be available for use in the near future that have shown a lot of promise thus far. FPIES, which stands for Food Protein-Induced Enterocolitis Syndrome, some people call it FIPPIES or FPIES. This is another one of the non-IgE or non-anaphylaxis food allergy conditions. It's actually completely different from EOE and it's not part of the EGIDs, at least that we know thus far. So this condition usually impacts our youngest patients, infants, right when they are starting to introduce foods to the diet. Eosinophils are not the primary allergy cell involved here. And in this condition, after exposure to foods, Children don't have an immediate reaction, such as hives or swelling, which would be more indicative of anaphylaxis, but they do have a characteristic reaction. And this is usually occurring about two to four hours after ingestion. Infants begin having profuse vomiting and sometimes very severe vomiting and sometimes even diarrhea. It usually involves multiple episodes, sometimes to the point where infants have nothing left in the stomach, and it can lead to dehydration, sometimes lethargy, becoming pale. In fact, some infants do end up in the emergency room, and this can sometimes be misdiagnosed as gastroenteritis or just a stomach bug. It's often only after multiple occurrences that a parent usually identifies that the vomiting is occurring only after the ingestion of certain specific foods. So again, certainly more of an acute presentation compared to EOE, but characteristically involving delayed vomiting and sometimes diarrhea hours after eating the food rather than that immediate 
hives of swelling, wheezing that we see with anaphylaxis, which is usually within minutes of eating the foods. So would it help a parent who might be thinking this is happening to keep a food diary before they see their doctor? I think it absolutely would. Again, especially with FPIs where the timing is, you know, when you're talking about two to four hours, that can sometimes be difficult to keep track of foods. So again, it usually is the parent that identifies the connection between the food and the symptoms. For the most part, when I see patients with FPIs, the family has made that connection already. And it's usually that they've had a couple instances where they've tried the same food and this led to the same reaction. And that's a hallmark of allergy in general in, in that you're having recurrent and repeatable symptoms with exposure to the same allergen. So now with EGIDs and FPIs, can a child outgrow these? So for the EGIDs, those tend to be a bit more chronic in nature, as we know at this point. FPIs, for the most part, actually, kids do tend to outgrow those sensitivities. It is a condition that is much more commonly seen in infants. And then with avoidance of the foods for about 18 to 24 months, a lot of those children can get the foods back in the diet, either with reintroduction at home or during a food challenge that's sometimes supervised. And that just depends on the interaction with the allergist and the plan for reintroduction. Wonderful. Thank you again. Your answers are just so easy to understand. Just like EOE, how can we support people with EGIDs in meaningful ways? So similarly, I think awareness is just so important overall since these conditions are not as pronounced or even well understood as other allergic conditions we see, such as asthma and allergies, and for sure compared to classic food allergy. You know, we have well-documented studies showing that there is often a large time gap between symptom onset in EOE or EGIDs and making the diagnosis where you can then intervene. There are likely a variety of factors at play here, but it's actually interesting. You know, before the 1990s, our understanding of EOE as a medical community was actually quite poor. It really wasn't even until 1995 until the connection between food allergy and EOE was determined. And even going forward to the early 2000s, the amount of data on EOE were very sparse. This has steadily increased since that time. But overall, our understanding and experience with EOE, in my opinion, is still somewhat in its infancy. There are a lot more questions to answer. Comparing this to asthma, which we've known about for decades and decades, it's not surprising that this condition often goes undiagnosed and sometimes mismanaged. So being cognizant about EOE as another potential allergic condition is important. And especially keeping an eye out for family, kids, et cetera, in terms of any trouble with feeding can really make a difference. We really appreciate you sharing these tips with us. So now before we wrap up today, do you have anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? So one thing that we have been focusing on related to EOE recently is actually the overlap that we see between EOE and then classic anaphylaxis food allergy. We touched upon this briefly in the beginning of the segment. This complicates things, of course, because we're talking about multiple different kinds of food allergy in the same patient. But it's actually being described more and more where we have patients who may have originally had anaphylaxis to a certain food and then over time begin to develop EOE either to that same food or even to a different food down the line. 
So in our clinic, actually, we recently surveyed all of our pediatric patients who we had diagnosed with classic food allergies, looking specifically for symptoms of EOE. And we found a very large proportion of these patients endorsed some sort of trouble swallowing or other symptoms that would at least be concerning for EOE. This is an ongoing area of study for us. This is an area we are continuing to work on so that we can potentially impact screening recommendations and identify EOE at earlier ages and then be able to intervene. And so for parents of children with food allergy, discussing EOE symptoms with your kids is important. And if there is any concern whatsoever, bringing this up to the attention of your allergist may lead to an earlier diagnosis, earlier treatment, and potentially prevention of disease progression. I think it's going to be interesting to look back five years from now to see how the progress has grown. Because I have a feeling, like you said, this area is in a little bit of its infancy, and I bet you it's just going to continue growing in the knowledge base. I agree. I think, you know, in the years to come, we're going to have a much better understanding of how this looks over time and then the treatments that we use. Well, hopefully we're going to hear about even better treatments and ways to really get this under control. So thank you so much for your time today. Again, I know you're incredibly busy and we appreciate you getting us in here and making time to speak with us. So thank you. And I do look forward to hosting you on the show again. Oh, my pleasure. Very happy to be here and hope to be back. Thank you. You will definitely be back. Before we say our goodbyes today, I just want to say thank you one more time to the National Peanut Board for being a kind sponsor of Facts Roundtable Podcast. Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another. <music>